if something or someone is moving in a, a particular direction and they're moving on a particular course or going a particular speed, in order for that object or that person to change directions, especially if they're going to go directly the opposite way that they're going, it's important first that that person slows down and then stops. In fact, it's necessary. You cannot change directions without some kind of a change in your speed and then, and then a turning of it. And the book of Hebrews was written to a group of people that had set on a particular course. They were Jewish New Testament or first century um, people that had given their lives to Jesus Christ and they had begun moving in a particular direction. But over the course of time, because of the pressures that were placed upon them by their society and by their families and even by the internal uh, traditional strings that were holding them, they began to slow down in that course and ultimately many of them were coming to a stop or going stagnant and some were beginning to go backwards, going back away from Jesus Christ and moving back into the tradition of their old religious system. And so the book of Hebrews was written to those first century Jews who were experiencing that cooling or that drifting or that slowing down, stopping and reversing course in the other direction. Now the message of the book doesn't just apply to first century Jews or even uh, later Jews that had given their lives to Christ. But the message of Hebrews applies to anyone who in their course or purpose of going after the things of God and following Christ, find themselves cooling or slowing down or drifting or changing directions and moving back from Christ into the things that they had come out of in the world. That's who the book is written to. And I know that that's a tendency that every one of us can have from time to time in our lives. We can lose vision. We can lose purpose or focus or uh, direction, and we can kind of forget why. We don't give up our profession necessarily in Christ, but we forget why we're following him, and we begin to slow down or we begin to drift away. And the solution or the remedy, whether it was to the first century Jews or whether it's to someone in our day that finds themselves drifting away from the things of God, the solution is to get a clear and long look at Jesus Christ again. And as we do that, things come back into focus. As we look at him, things around us begin to make sense. I think of a man who was blind, who Jesus healed. And he, you know, spit on the mud. It's kind of a classic Sunday school Bible story. And then he made clay with the spit and the, 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 the dirt. And he rubbed it on the man's eyes. And it touched him. And it says that he asked him if he saw anything. And the man replied to Jesus and he said, I see men as trees walking. And then Jesus, it says that he touched him and he caused him to look up. And he said, now what do you see? And he said, now I see all things clearly. And sometimes when life becomes confusing and we begin seeing things for what they aren't and we lose focus and purpose for, for, for our calling and our destiny, what we need is to look up again. And when we see up, when we see Jesus, life makes sense in its proper context. And so the solution for anyone who's drifting is the message of Hebrews, which is Jesus Christ. 
and that is that Jesus Christ is superior in all things. Now we left off right in the middle of an argument or a case that the author is making that Jesus is superior to the angels. And I shared with you last week that to the uh, Jewish believers in the Old Testament and even to people in the modern era, angels are a big deal, but they don't match Jesus Christ. And so the author is proving and showing that Jesus is superior to angels in almost every way. And he said to them in chapter one that, they, that Jesus is infinitely higher than the angels, first of all, in his position. That is that they are servants, but he is the son. He's also infinitely higher in rank. They are in their order, principalities and powers that are administers of certain things for God. But Jesus is God, which makes him infinitely higher in his rank before the angels. He's also infinitely higher in his role. And his role, as the author pointed out, is that he is the king. That God himself spoke of Jesus and he said, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. And a scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. And so Jesus is the king over the angels, and thus in his role, he is higher, infinitely higher than they are. And where we resume now in verse 5 of chapter 2 is that Jesus is also infinitely higher than the angels in his achievement. And the achievement that Jesus has that makes him higher than the angels is that he is the Savior. And not one of the angels can claim before God or before men that they are the Savior of any man or of mankind. Now, in verse 3, where we kind of left off last week in that last little segment where uh, the warning is being issued about drifting away, the author talks about the great salvation that's been provided through Jesus Christ. He said that if, any, if, if in the Old Testament every transgression or sin that was uh, transgressed received a just reward then how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which was first spoken by Jesus, then testified by the apostles, and then uh, um, verified by God through the gifts and miracles of the Holy Spirit that he gave in the first century and then throughout the ages. But he talks about this great salvation. And the reason why this salvation that comes through Christ is so great is because, first of all, it's the only salvation. There is no salvation in any other name other than the name of Jesus. There will be no one that can have their sins forgiven or that will stand in heaven for any other reason than but from putting their faith in the finished work of the cross of Jesus Christ. There is no other way for men to be saved. And thus it's a great salvation. It's also a great salvation because it's all-inclusive. That God says through the gospel message of this salvation that whosoever will believe in him will be saved. Paul said that if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and we believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, that we will be saved. For with the mouth, confession is made unto salvation and with the heart, belief is generated for righteousness. And he says, for whosoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And so it's a great salvation because it doesn't leave anyone out. Anyone can call upon the name of the Lord. And it's also a great salvation because it reaches even the lowest of sinners. It doesn't matter what a person has done with their life 
or what their sin has brought them into throughout the course of it. When that person will believe in Christ, turn from their sin and put their faith in him for salvation, that person can be saved no matter what it was that they did prior to it. And thus it is a great salvation not to be neglected. It's a great salvation. But why the author is spending so much time telling us two chapters that Jesus is greater than the angels is because fundamental to this salvation is the fact, first of all, that Jesus was God. It's not enough if he was an angel or if he was just a man. He had to be God and Jesus was God and that's the proof or the point that was proved in chapter one, that thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. And thus every proof that was laid out in chapter one has to do with the deity of Jesus Christ, that he was God. But it's also essential within the terms of this great salvation that Jesus was a man. He had to be fully God and fully man. And so as chapter one shows that Jesus was God, chapter two now, the remainder of it, shows that Jesus was also a man. And that's important that we understand that because the verses that he's gonna use uh, in his case in chapter two are of a much different sound than the ones that he used in chapter one. And so he begins in, in verse five, as he continues this argument, presenting Jesus as the son of man, he says this. He says, for unto the angels hath he, that is God, not put in subjection the world to come whereof we speak. In other words, nowhere has God ever in the Old Testament scriptures or by the prophets or in any wise placed the angels as uh, agents of authority in the world that is to come, that they have no place in that. However, verse six now, he says, but one in a certain place testified saying, and what he's gonna quote now is David and he's quoting from Psalm chapter eight, verses uh, three through six. And he quotes that, those verses by saying, what is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you visit him? You made him a little lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor and you did set him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. Now pause right there. I know that the verse goes on, but the quotation from Psalm chapter eight does not. That's where the quotation stops. And what the author of Hebrews is doing here is he's taking the words of David spoken by the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. And he's saying that although angels have never been promised a place of rulership in the world to come, man absolutely has and it was spoken by the Spirit of God through the mouth of David. Now, Psalm 8 is an absolutely fascinating uh, testimony when you look at it in its context and think about what it is saying and what is being spoken through it, even to us now in its interpretation here in Hebrews. The Psalm begins with David just saying, O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. And he just gives some, some glory and praise to God in the opening verses of that Psalm. But then his meditation comes out as he, as he continues writing. And he says these words. He says, when I consider thy heavens, the work of thy fingers, the sun, the moon that thou hast made. 
And then he describes some of the cosmos, some of the things that are out there. And you can just imagine David laying out on, on one night or, or walking maybe upon the wall of Jerusalem and just looking out and seeing the stars and all of their glory and the constellations and maybe the moon or, or something or some of the, the bands of one of the galaxies, the Milky Way galaxy there. And as he just sits there and thinks about God and what God has made. And then he thinks about himself. And he thinks about his life in the context of what God, who created all of that, had done for him. He speaks the words and he says, what is man that you are mindful of him in the light of all of this? When I consider the heavens, the work of your hands, the sun, the moon, the stars, the things that you have made. The Milky Way, well, let's start with the universe. The universe itself, the Bible says, spans God's hand. Meaning that if you were to take God's hand, if you could do this, and you were to use it to measure the size of the entire universe, it would span from the tip of his thumb to the tip of his pinky. That's how big the universe is. Well, you say, well, that seems pretty small when I think about it in the context of fitting in the, the palm of someone's hand. Did you know that the universe as we know it right now contains 100 billion, and this is estimated, 100 billion billion galaxies of which our Milky Way galaxy is just one. So the Milky Way galaxy is one of a hundred billion galaxies, but in a universe where there's more black empty space than there is actual galaxy that's taking up that space. That seems pretty large to me. The Milky Way galaxy, which is what our earth is, is, is set inside of somewhere consists of over 200 billion stars. Just the Milky Way galaxy, one of 100 billion galaxies that exist out in the universe. Think about it for a moment. You say, well, okay, how about the Earth? How about our solar system in light of the size of the galaxy? Well, you could take our Earth and you can fit 1.3 million Earths inside our sun. That's a lot. <laughs> the sun is a relatively small star. If you go just a little bit bigger and you take a medium-sized star, the star Pollux, which is classified as a giant, you could fit 512 suns inside that one star, Pollux. If you take a larger star, Betelgeuse, which is considered or classified as a red supergiant, you could fit one billion of our suns inside just the one star, Betelgeuse. And if you take one of the largest stars, Canis Major, which is considered a red hypergiant, you can fit 9.3 billion of our sun inside Canis Major. And that's just a couple of stars. And there are 200 billion stars in the Milky Way galaxy. And there are 100 billion galaxies in the universe. And the whole universe just spans the hand of God. Now look at you and me. as it relates to the size of all of that. And if you consider it for what it is, you come to the same question that David did and you say, what is man that you are mindful of him? If all of that creation out there and the sheer size of it is just finger work to God, the work of his fingers, it's nothing to him. Did you know that our galaxy, the Milky Way galaxy, is actually moving at about 1.2 million miles per hour. Think about that for a minute. How much energy does it take 
to get something that big moving that fast. And yet God just going, brings it around. It's nothing to him. It's just a finger wave. Amazingly, you read Isaiah chapter 52 and Isaiah chapter 53. The Bible says that God rolled up his sleeves to save us. All creation, just needlework, finger work, just one hand, no big deal. But when he wanted to save man, he said, I'm going to roll up my sleeves. It took a little bit more. It took more for God to save us than it did for him to make it all. And you begin to ask the question, and you say, what is man that you're mindful of him? Or the son of man that you're... What does it mean that God is mindful of man? The Bible says that his thoughts towards us are more in number than the grains of sand that are on the seashore. Now think about that. I can't give you that number. I have no illustration in any way that could try to um, bring understanding or volume to how many thoughts that is. But that's how many thoughts God thinks towards you. He doesn't think that way about the universe or the cosmos or how it's all working. But he thinks that way towards you. Why? Or the son of man that you visit him. How is it that a God as big as our God who can do all that our God can do would come down not just into the world and visit us in the person of his son? That's one thing all in itself. But on an individual basis that he would come to us at various times and he would just meet with us and sit with us. That when we'd wake up in the morning and just get alone with him and open up our Bible or or set our hearts to seek and to worship him, that his presence can come and fill the place where we are and he can come so intimately and make us aware of his presence there with us. And that he can talk to us about the things that are going on in our life and give us insight and wisdom and strengthen us from within and shed his love abroad in our hearts in such a way that we, we just know that he is so near to us. What is man that the God of all the universe would take time to reveal himself to us and to reveal that he knows us in such an intimate way more so than we know ourselves? What is man that you're mindful of him. And if you start to think about that after just a couple of seconds, you start to short circuit. You go, I, it doesn't make sense. My calculator has the big E on it. The check engine light is on in my mind. It's, there's something that can't resolve in this whole thing. It doesn't make sense to me that a God that big would condescend to care anything about me. And yet he cares that much about me. I don't understand it. What is man that you're mindful of him or the son of man that you would visit him? And then he says what God has destined for man. This is what God had in mind when he made us. He says, you made him a little lower than the angels. Now, that's where we are right now, right? I mean, in a sense, though we outrank them in our position as Christians, we are under them and it is that they have a greater dominion than we do presently. He says, you made him a little lower than the angels, but you crowned him with glory and honor and did set him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. Now, think about Adam in the Garden of Eden for just a moment. When God placed Adam in the Garden of Eden, he set him over all the works of his hand. Adam had dominion. God said to him, have dominion over all things, over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, all fowl, all beasts of the field, all of the produce of the land. You have authority over all of it. And that was what God gave to Adam when he made him in the garden. And that was an incredible authority. Adam's responsibility was to dress and to keep the garden of Eden. It wasn't a labor for him, but it was something for him to do. There was a joy in it. 
It was all subject to him. He would command and things would take place. That was the power that Adam had. He had subjection over the world. But when he fell to Satan's temptation, he yielded control of the sovereignty that God had given him over creation into the hand of the devil. He forfeited his right of authority over the world and it was usurped or taken by the devil himself. When Jesus was tempted by Satan in Matthew chapter 4, also it's recorded in Luke chapter 4. One of the things that Satan brought Jesus to was a high mountain where he could see all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And he said to him, all of this power and all of this glory is delivered into my hands and I can give it to whomsoever I will. And if you will just bow down and worship me, all will be yours. I'll give it to you. Now, Jesus came to redeem and to take back what Satan had stolen and to put it back in its rightful place. But he came to do it by hanging on a cross and dying, not by paying the devil the homage that he was asking Jesus for. He wanted Satan to give Jesus the crown without the cross. That was the promise that he was making. But the point is that the dominion that Satan held was real. He said to Jesus, this is mine and I can give it to whosoever I will. And he could. And even as we sit here tonight, Satan is the one who is the usurper, the prince of the power of the air, as Jesus called him, the God of this age, as Paul called him, the one who works things according to the working of his will in the kingdoms of men now here on earth, not the kingdom of God, but the kingdoms of men is the devil himself. And that's what the author of Hebrews says as he continues in verse 8 with his own comments. He says, You put all things in subjection under his feet, for in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him, but now we see not yet all things put under him. In other words, something happened that removed man from his place of authority over the world even though he's entitled to be over all, he is not yet right now over all. Something has taken that out. Now, the key words in understanding where the author is going with this are back in verse 5. Look at verse 5 again. Notice what he says. He says, For unto the angels has he not put in subjection the world to come, whereof we speak. In other words, the context of all of this is not even this present world that we're in right now, but rather it's the world to come. And so what he's saying is that God, in placing all things under man's subjection and leaving nothing that was not placed under his subjection, that includes the world to come. That God intended man to have authority over all things, not just in this world, but also in the world to come. And so in this world where we are right now, though we were given that authority, we've yielded it and we do not have it. We do not see right now presently all things under his feet. You say, well, what does it look like for man to have all things under his subjection or under his authority? Notice what the author says in verse 9. He says, but we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, that is, in his humanity, being born of a virgin, taking on the form of human flesh, just like we are, 
He came into our fallen world in the form of fallen man. He was made a little bit lower than the angels, crowned with glory and honor. So he was in this world as part of our fallen creation, but he did not yield his authority, nor was he under the subjection of Satan, the usurper. And so when we look at Jesus in his humanity, we see that he still had authority over the creation that he was in. And thus Jesus would come to his disciples walking on the water. And the disciples would see him there and they would think, it's a ghost, that's impossible. Man can't walk on water. And Peter would say, Lord, if that's really you, call me to come out there. And Jesus, come on. And you guys know the story. We don't have to veer down, down the path. But Jesus, able to walk on water. When the storm was filling the water with, with, or the boat with water and the disciples were perishing in the storm, they woke Jesus who was fast asleep and they said, Lord, we perish from this flood. And he arose and he said, you have little faith. And he stood up and he rebuked the wind and the waves and immediately there was a perfect calm. And it says that they marveled because even the wind and the waves obeyed the word of Jesus. He had dominion over the creation. When a man was possessed by a legion of demons that no man or exorcist or method could cast out, nor could the chains and fetters of man bind the strength of the demons in this man, Jesus spoke one word to him. He said, come out of him. And that man was immediately set free. There is no authority that can be usurped over the Son of God at any time. And thus Jesus, in this world fully as a man, yet possessing the authority that was given to man because he himself was sinless and not under the curse. He gives to us a perfect picture of what it looks like for man to not be in subjection under this world, but rather to be in authority over it. He was crowned with glory and honor. And so we see Jesus, God, coming into this world in human flesh. Why? He goes on to say that he, this is why, by the grace of God should taste death for every man. Literally, that he should take death for every man, that he should experience it in their place. What motivated God to send his son into the world as a man to do what it is that he did? It wasn't just to show off what man lost, but rather it was that by his grace, he might take upon himself the curse of death and the sting of that curse and remove the thorn of the curse that man was under and restore him back to the position that God had initially destined him for in creation. He says that by the grace of God, not by the law of God or the works of God, not by the things that we would do, but by the grace of God, his willingness, motivated by his love to forgive our sins and do for us what we could not do for ourselves. That's what grace is. That's what motivated God to do it, that he should take death for every man. For, he says, it became him, it was his will, for whom are all things and by whom are all things. That is that all things have their end in God and all things have their beginning in God. They're all for him in the end and they are all initiated by him. Now, when you ask the question and you say, God, why would you do this? Why would you care? What is man that you would care enough about him to redeem him? The author doesn't know. So the author says, well, he created all things. All things are for him and it became him. It was his will. For whom are all things? By whom are all things? 
in bringing many sons to glory, that's you and I, the redeemed, to make the captain of their salvation, that is Jesus, perfect through suffering. Now, what that is not saying is that Jesus was imperfect and that it was through the suffering of the cross that he was then perfected. That's not the idea. The idea is that the salvation was perfected through the sufferings of Christ. That it was the will of God that it would be through the suffering of God's wrath and that that wrath would be placed upon his son Jesus that in that the salvation would be perfected. And it was necessary that sin be paid for. The law of God demands that the wages of sin is what? That's right. You guys are good. The wages of sin is death. And thus, in order for sin to be properly atoned, death must be experienced. And that death is either going to be experienced by the sinner or it's going to be experienced by a savior. But the only way that someone could qualify as a savior is if they are actually sinless. If they have any sin in their life at all, then they're dying for their own sin. And so in order for someone to qualify as a savior for someone else, they have to die being innocent. And that's what Jesus did. It pleased the father that he would make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. And here's why. Going deeper, verse 11. For both he that sanctifies and they who are sanctified are all of one. Of wit or for which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, and now he quotes scripture, I will declare thy name unto my brethren, Psalm 22, verse 2. In the midst of the church will I sing praise unto you. And then again, quoting now from Isaiah chapter 8, verse 17, I will put my trust in him, and again, behold, I and the children which God has given me. Pulling these three verses out to show that Jesus calls us, listen, his brothers or his family members. It says that he that sanctifies, that is Jesus, and they that are sanctified, cleansed, that's us, are all of one. There is one unit in the two, that the two become one. And now the mystery begins to unfold as to why it was so important that Jesus was made a man. See, God's intent from the beginning when he made man is that we would be, or that everything would be in subjection to us. For unto which of the angels did he put in subjection the world to come whereof we speak? None, but Concerning man, he says, he has placed all things under our feet. In other words, it was God's intent from the beginning that we would be one with Jesus Christ. That's why the Bible says that we are the bride of Christ. That's why the Bible says that when we get saved, we are in him. We're one with him. We're linked with him. That's why we take communion because there's a union, a common union between us and Christ. We've been placed in him. That's why when we pray in Jesus' name, the Father responds to that prayer as though Jesus is praying it because we're in him. We are one with Jesus Christ. But in order for that to take place, he first had to become one of us in our fallen place in order to bring us back to that state. In Leviticus chapter 25, which is the law, 
There's a law called the law of the Goel, or the law of the kinsman redeemer. And what that law basically states is that if any time there is one of God's people that for any reason is sold or his property is sold to someone for any reason, and they become a slave because they can't pay their debts and they now belong to someone else or their property is mortgaged and taken by someone else because they can't pay their debts, then the law provided that someone who was the closest relative, a brother, or if there was no brother, then it could be an uncle or a cousin or, or the closest person that was related and they had to be related, that that person had the right to redeem what was lost. They could pay the price of redemption in order to restore the person back from slavery or to bring the property back from uh, you know, foreign ownership or whatever it was, but it had to be the kinsman redeemer or the goel. That was part of the law. In the book of Ruth, we see that played out. When Boaz wanted to marry Ruth, who was a Moabitess who had been widowed by a Jewish man, he wanted to marry her, but he didn't have the right if he wasn't the closest relative. And there was one person that was closer related to Ruth's ex-husband, well, deceased husband, uh, that had the right to redeem her. And Boaz had to overcome or get that man to release his rights for Ruth in order for him to marry her. It was the law of the Goel, or the kinsman redeemer. And so in order for Jesus to redeem us back from the curse and to set us free from the slavery that we were in because of sin, he had to become one of us. Man has to be redeemed by man. And thus for Jesus to be God alone is not enough. He had to be the son of God, but he also had to be the son of man. And thus he came into this world born of a virgin. And in that he lived the sinless life that he lived as a man, in that he defeated every temptation that he defeated as a man and then died a sinner's death upon the cross, he became qualified as God and as man to redeem. And thus in doing that and offering to us now the free gift of salvation, he meets the requirements of the law to be the sanctifier or the cleanser of our sins. And thus when we respond to that invitation and we give our hearts to him, we become sanctified. And in that sanctification, which just simply means being cleansed and set apart for God, we become one with Jesus Christ. And so what does that mean? It means that now you ask that question and you say, what is man? And you say, I have no idea, but it's way more than what we think. And it's way more than what we understand. And we will spend the ages to come trying to figure out why and how God has made us what we are and placed us where we are in the person of his son. To think that we will rule and reign with Christ as his bride unified with him for all of eternity. Do you know that that's why Satan hates you so much? Because you occupy a position that he covets greatly that he will never have. His desire from the very beginning was to rule and reign with God or over God is what it perverted into. You read Isaiah 14 five times. He said, I will ascend above the most high. And Satan knows more about you than you do because he knows what God made you for. He knows what he made us for. And thus his purpose is to destroy because he hates 
anything that God loves and anything that will be more than what he is. It, be, it became him because he that sanctifies and they who are sanctified are all of one. He calls us his brothers. For as much then, verse 14, as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same. He had to be human flesh in order to meet the requirements of Redeemer. There was a heresy that existed in the early church called Gnosticism. It still exists today, but it doesn't carry the same weight that it did in those days then. And what the Gnostics believed is that all flesh was immaterial or, or irrelevant, and that therefore anything that was in the flesh or of the flesh didn't matter at all. It was all going to perish, and thus you could do anything you want in the flesh, and Ultimately, at the end of the day, it didn't matter because anything spiritual is good and anything that's of the flesh is bad. But what the Gnostics believed and taught about Jesus is that Jesus did not come in the flesh, that Jesus came as a spirit or an apparition, that when he walked on the beach, there was no footprints left behind, that there was no flesh. That's a heresy because if Jesus is less than human, then he's less than Savior and he's not less than Savior. He was fully God, fully man. 1 John chapter 4, verse 2 says that every spirit that confesses not that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. He was made like unto us. As the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same. So that through death, he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil. And deliver them, that is us, who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. And so Jesus effectively, through his death and resurrection, destroyed the devil's power over death and he destroyed death itself. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul declares in victorious proclamation of the resurrection, he says, death, where is your sting? Grave, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God in Jesus Christ who is overcome for death is swallowed up in victory. He has done away with death. And the apostle that wrote or the, the author who wrote Hebrews here talks about the fear of death which enslaves men all their lives. I read an article today about uh, a, a famous fashion designer. He became the, the CEO of Gucci, and then he became a filmmaker, and he lives an incredibly immoral lifestyle, but he's been in, hugely successful, and he's wealthy beyond imagination. And he granted a three-hour interview to uh, the Hollywood reporters, and in that interview, he talked about the despair of his life that not one hour goes by that he doesn't dread and fear the reality of death, that death is coming. And death is something that every single person that occupies this planet is aware of somewhere in their rearview mirror, that when they look and they see what's coming up behind him, behind them, their death is somewhere there. For some, it seems afar off, and some, it seems like it's getting ever closer, but it's something that's always there on the mind of a person that doesn't know what death is or what happens after death. But when a person gives their life to Jesus Christ, that changes because that person knows that death has gone from a, a, a master to now being a servant within their life. The Bible says that he that has the son has life, but he that has not the son has not life. 
The Bible says that when we pass from darkness to light, we pass from death to life and that we can die no more. Jesus said, he that lives and believes in me shall never die because death has been taken away. The sting of it has has gone. We are gone. And so even though we're aware of death, death has no power over us. But yet we still have a tendency to run from it, don't we? We run from death in two ways. Number one, we try to prolong our lives, right? We do things to try to keep ourselves young. I mean, we're all guilty of it, every single one of us. We hear about something that, you know, if we eat it, we'll, we'll live longer, or if we don't eat it, it'll, it'll help us, we'll live longer. And we're like, okay, well, I'll try that. You know, I want to live a little bit longer. And we'll do things to try to prolong our life. The other thing that we do in a fear of death or out of a fear of death, or anyone can do, is that we try to extract as much life as we possibly can out of our time here on this world. And so we'll do things that, 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 that we'll say, well, you only live once. And if I don't do this now, I'll never have a chance because eventually I'm going to die and in the grave I can't do these things. And so I'm going to just extract as much life out of, out of the time I have on this world that I possibly can. And so we run from death by prolonging our lives and by extracting life from whatever we can. But when we do that, we become subject to bondage. The devil knows that if he can get a person afraid of death, and if he can get a person running away from death, that he can get that person to do anything he wants if it means that they'll prolong their life a little bit or if they'll extract some pleasure or experience out of this life that they otherwise wouldn't have. And when he can do that, he knows that he can bring that person into bondage to a lot of things. But when a person in Jesus Christ has been set free from a fear of death, they've been set free of the bondage that can be associated with a fear of death because they know what death is in its proper context. That death has gone from an enemy to a servant in my life. Something has to carry us from this world that we are in right now into that which is to come, wherein we will rule and reign with Jesus Christ. And whatever that agent is, whether it's the rapture, which we all hope for, or whether it's death, that thing is actually serving me because it's bringing me from where I am now in this fallen world to that better world that awaits me in glory with him. Now, that doesn't mean that I'm excited about the act of dying. I'm looking forward to being in heaven. I dream about that. But I'm not looking forward to the experience. I mean, you know, if I was going to be operated on internally for some issue that's going on, I would be looking forward to the fact that what's wrong with me is going to be fixed. I'm not looking forward to the procedure. I don't want to lay on the table. And so it's normal for us to, to be a little apprehensive about the way that we die. But for a Christian who really understands what's been done for them, death is not an enemy. Death is a servant. Something must carry us from where we are to where we're going. I read this this morning. This is from the pen of Charles Spurgeon. Just listen to these words. He says, We often look ahead to old age with fear and trembling, forgetting that when evening comes there will be light. Yet for many saints, old age is the best season of their lives. A more pleasant tropical breeze warms the mariner's face as he nears the shore of immortality. Fewer waves ripple his sea, and quiet reigns, deep, peaceful, and majestic. From the altar of age, the fiery flashes of youth may be gone, but the more steady flame of true and sincere feeling remains. 
These older pilgrims have reached Beulah, that blessed country where each day is like heaven on earth. Angels visit there. Heavenly breezes blow across it. Flowers of paradise grow on it, and its air is filled with the music of seraphim. Some people dwell here for years, while others reach it only a few hours before their departure. It is the closest thing to Eden on earth. We may very well yearn for that time when we will rest in its shady groves and be satisfied with hope until the ultimate time of fruition arrives. The setting sun seems larger when it is high in the sky, and a splendor of glory paints all the clouds surrounding it with the tinges of color as it sets. Even pain does not break the calm of the sweet twilight of age, for power made perfect in weakness endures with patience through it all. The ripe fruit of blessed experience is gathering as a sumptuous meal of life evening as the soul prepares itself for rest. The Lord's people will enjoy his light in the hour of death. And for the believer, death has an incredibly different context than it does for anyone else in the world because it serves to bring us into what we've ultimately been prepared for all along. And praise be to the Lord Jesus Christ who tasted the sting of death in order to remove us from the fear of death. He says in verse 16, for verily he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. He had to be fully God, not just a spiritual angelic apparition. Wherefore, therefore, because of this, in all things, it behooved him. Great word, isn't it, King James? The word literally means that he was obliged or it was lawful or he was required to be made like unto his brethren that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make reconciliation for the sins of of the people. Not only did his humanity qualify him to be our redeemer, the Goel, the kinsman, but it also makes him a faithful high priest in things pertaining to God because he knows what it's like to live in our flesh. He knows what it's like to live in our fallen world. And thus in his priestly ministry before the throne, he is able to rightly represent us because he knows us. He's been one of us. And he's able to represent God to us for the same reason. He concludes by saying, for in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able also to succor or to help or assist them also that are tempted. He suffered in temptation and therefore he knows how to help those that are tempted in this life now. How does Jesus help us in our temptations? You think, well, I know one way he doesn't help us. He doesn't just take the temptation completely away so that it's not affecting me anymore. And anyone who's ever been tempted with a strong temptation knows that, that he doesn't just do it. Well, then how in the world does Jesus help us when we're suffering with temptation? He does it in four ways. He does it, first of all, by giving us instruction, by simply saying, this is wrong. This will kill you. Don't do it. And happy and wise is the man or woman that that's enough. <laughs> that God said it and I believe it and so I'm just going to walk in that and listen to it. Now for most of us it's not. And so thankfully Jesus doesn't stop there by just giving us the instruction of saying don't do that. 
He also, the second way, gave us an example. When you read Matthew chapter 4 and Luke chapter 4 and you see the way that Jesus dealt with temptation, when Satan came to Jesus in a weakened, vulnerable state and brought the strongest temptations that can be brought upon a human in the condition that he was in at that time, and you see the way that Jesus navigated those temptations and overcame them, it serves for you and I as an example as to how to overcome temptation in our lives. And so he gives us instruction. He also gives us an example. The third way that he helps us in our temptations is that he gives us a way of escape. In 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul said by the Spirit of God that God never allows us to be tempted beyond what we're able to handle. But he is faithful with every temptation that we receive to with that temptation also give us a way of escape that we can bear the temptation. And every single one of us here that has ever been tempted with something can bear witness and say amen to the fact that God always gives a way of escape so that we don't have to do the thing that we are being tempted with. One of the things that I hate and love about being a pastor is sitting across from someone whose lives have been completely shipwrecked by some sin that they've been overcome by whether it's shown up in their marriage or whether it's shown up in their parenting or whether it's shown up in their physical body or their health or in any other way that sin has just wreaked havoc on their life. I sit across from a person who is completely broken and that looks at me and says, I wish with everything that I have that I could go back and take the way of escape that was given to me. I wish I could go back I wish I had listened. I wish I had heeded. And I hate those moments when I have to watch the destruction of that. But I also love those moments because for me, it makes me fear what can happen to any person that doesn't listen or heed what Jesus says. He gives an escape. And thankfully, the fourth way that he helps us in our temptation is that he gives us education through our failures. Failure is the material of success. Did you know that? That when we fall and when we falter, it gives to us the building materials so that we can successfully navigate through those same things in the future. And thankfully, when we fall, God restores. And he hopes that we'll learn from those failures, seize upon the opportunity afforded by them, and that we'll overcome the temptation when it comes. Now, I believe this with all my heart. I'm testifying to you as one who's walked with the Lord for, for almost, well, I don't want to make it sound longer than it is, 17-something years, that there is in the Christian life absolute deliverance from the things that we struggle with. We do not carry the things that we wrestle with or bring into our salvation all the way to the grave, that there is a time of final deliverance for the things that we struggle with. He grants that, but he lets those things that we struggle with have their way in our lives and he accomplishes and completes his purpose in us through them and then he removes them once they've done that. And so when those temptations come, it isn't enough for us to say, well, these things are just too powerful for me. I can't overcome them. Yes, you can. 
because his commandments are his enablements and he knows how to help us in our temptation. So what's the conclusion of this lengthy two-chapter portion where the author gives to us the case that Jesus is more superior than the angels? What's the application for all of us that this leads to? And here's what it is. It is that the fullness of our trust and of our allegiance belongs and is safe with Jesus Christ because he is God. And because he alone has provided salvation from eternal damnation and separation from God. And because in that salvation, he has made us one with himself and that we will rule and reign with him in the world to come. And because as captain of our salvation, he is fit to lead our lives and he alone is able and willing to do that, that we might successfully navigate this world. And because he himself alone has defeated death and the fear of death and brought the freedom that comes with that. And because he lived a life in this fallen world, he knows how to help, to lead, to deliver, and to feel what we feel. And he is our ever-present help in our time of trouble. And he's willing to be that in our lives every day. And therefore, if any one of us tonight find ourselves in a place where we've drifted from him in any way, where the things of the world have become more clear and the things of God have become shady and fuzzy. If what was once purpose and direction and speed and our movement and our pursuit of God has slowed or come to a stop or we've gone the other direction, that when we look at Jesus, we see in him one that so loved us and is so concerned about us that made us and knows us better than we know ourselves and was willing to come into this world in the form of humanity, to live the perfect life that we couldn't live, to die in our place, to take up his place as the leader, the Lord and shepherd of our lives, and he is the one that is able to successfully bring us from where we are to where we're going. And when we come back into a realization of that, all things become clear, and our direction is set right. Father, we thank you tonight, Lord, as we... Um, as we conclude this chapter and uh, this segment of Hebrews, and we're thankful for the way that you are magnified through the things that you've set before us in the Word tonight. And as we consider your size and we consider our smallness, Lord, we rejoice that you're so mindful of us and so willing to visit. And so, Lord, would you have your way in each one of us the things that are troubling us tonight, Lord, would we see that you're upholding all things by your word, that you hold us in your hand, and that we would be yours completely. Take our allegiance, take our lives, take all that we are. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand together.